on, guys. All right. Wow. Here we go. Just holding out, hoping some other adults come down here. Okay, you ready? Come on in. We're going to pray now, okay? So let's fold our hands. Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here this morning. Thank you that we can learn about you, that we can sing, we can pray. Thank you for our friends. Thank you for our church. We pray that you would make this a great time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I think you know who to pray for. You'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says wisdom develops discipline on it. We are in Proverbs chapter 4 today. It started with a bunch of verses, but basically just settled on this one passage. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 through 27. And please listen carefully as this is God's word. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done something wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We think we are people who are disciplined and wise. And sometimes we are, and sometimes we aren't. Use your word this morning to get us to consider your wisdom Help us to ask how we can better develop discipline by what we put into our hearts. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make us people 
who make wise decisions and as part of our everyday life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you this morning uh, about a man named George. George was born in 1880, and he grew up in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, population 3,500. In his early teens, his family moved to Luray, Virginia, where his father lost all their money in a real estate scheme. And too embarrassed to ask for help, his father sent George to a nearby hotel kitchen to beg for scraps. And they wouldn't give him much until he told them it was for the dog. But it wasn't. George was not a bright, sparkling boy. When he was nine, his father enrolled him in the local public school. And back then, you had to pass an entrance interview to get in, a different day and time. However, George was not able to answer any of the questions. Eventually, uh, due to the pleading of his mother, he was let in, but he lagged far behind all the other kids academically. He said, I did not like school. The truth is, I was not even a poor student. I was simply not a student. And my academic record was a sad affair. After school ended, because he admired his older brother, Stuart, who is far more favored by his parents, uh, he wanted to follow his brother, Stuart, to the Virginia Military Institute, VMI. And so he was begging his parents to let him go to VMI, and he overheard one night his brother, Stuart, talking to his mother in the kitchen. And he was trying to persuade her not to let him go to VMI because he said George would, quote, disgrace the family name. George says that made more of an impression on him than anything else ever. He decided right then and there that he was going to prove them all wrong. He said, I learned my lesson. The urgency to succeed for the rest of my life came from overhearing that conversation. George eventually did go to VMI as mother sold their house so that he could go. And George learned from his humiliations at school, which were many, and at home, which were many, that success in life was not going to come from his natural talent. George's rise in the ranks would come from grinding it out, being dogged in attitude and plodding along for accomplishment, all the while exercising what he called persistent self-discipline. While at VMI, George learned a new skill because VMI emphasized renunciation, the ability to forego small pleasures in order to enjoy great ones later on, what we would today call delayed gratification. And while VMI was not considered a great school at the time, being a military school, it taught the habits of institutionalized self-discipline. And George still didn't uh, excel academically at VMI. He was still not a good student, but he excelled at drill and ceremony, organization, neatness, precision, self-control, and leadership. He mastered the art of self-discipline. So much so that when George tore a ligament in his right arm, something I know a little bit about, um, he refused to report the injury 
and he let it heal on his own, which took two years. Now, he was a student at VMI, military school. You have to salute a lot with your right arm at military school. And since it hurts to salute with a torn ligament in your right arm, George spent the next two years in constant pain. In his last year at VMI, George was named first captain, the highest rank for a student. He completed four years without a single demerit. He developed the austere commanding presence that would forever mark his personality. He excelled at anything that had anything to do with soldiering, and he was the unquestioned leader of his class, all because he was simply more disciplined than everyone else. We'll come back to George, but it's important to note that last line. He was simply more disciplined than everyone else. Now, the word discipline can be used in a variety of ways. In the Bible, uh, first and foremost, primarily used to describe correction, uh, being chastised, instruction, training, and righteousness. Uh, Most often it's used in a family setting uh, to describe the discipline that parents bring to children. And of course, a parent's discipline of children is is supposed to reflect the Lord's discipline of us. Hebrews 12.6 reminds us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Later on we read uh, in, uh, again, chapter 12, verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the first use of that word. Another way the word discipline is used is to describe church discipline. This is a means of grace the church exercises in order to bring glory to God by the reclaiming of church members who've fallen away from the Lord and fallen into sin. It's a means of bringing them to repentance and instructing the rest of the church. Third way the uh, word discipline is used uh, is not found in the Bible, but it's often used in our culture, and that's to describe your vocational field of study. You may have heard the phrase, they're working and they're chosen academic discipline. For example, my academic discipline is practical theology. I particularly like that term. However, none of those things are what we're talking about this morning, because the second most common application of the word discipline in the scriptures and the most common use in the book of Proverbs refers to self-discipline and self-control. We saw that in our responsive reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Paul uh, writes, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So what does the book of Proverbs teach us about discipline? Well, first of all, it lets us know that discipline or self-control is a good thing. It's to be desired. It's to be pursued. It's a fruit of the Spirit that should be increasing in our life as our life is increasing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we see in Proverbs that if a person is to be disciplined, it's going to be a whole person undertaking. What I mean by that is discipline is to be mental, emotional, and physical. It's all-encompassing. So, 
We're going to start and look primarily at the mental aspect of it. Discipline is a mental exercise because it starts with the decision to be disciplined. The decision to be disciplined. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs and the subject of wisdom for life. And now the teacher continues to instruct us to discipline us in the way of wisdom by means of contrast. This is used often in Proverbs. It's a powerful teaching tool. Often we can best appreciate the value of something good by looking at its opposite. So in this section, the writer not only describes the benefits of the way of wisdom, but also shows us the grim alternative. So we start verse 10 with the way of wisdom. That should be the first blank there. It says, Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Very quickly, uh, Verse 10 shows us he's anxious first to keep his family's attention. Uh, you have uh, scenes in chapter 4 of a father speaking to his sons and grandfather speaking to his grandsons. But it's very family-oriented. He's passing on instruction. And he backs up his appeal for wisdom by specifying the benefits of choosing the way of wisdom. In verse 10, we get a long life promise that was already given to us in Proverbs 3. In verse 11, we get a sense of purpose. Paths which are straight enable us to keep a sense of direction where we are supposed to be going. The wise know where they're going in life. In verse 12, we get the benefit of consistent living. Doesn't mean the wise are faultless, but that God saves them from the pitfalls that lie before us into which the wicked try to lure them. Verse 13, we're given a positive quality of life. And all this is sort of just laid out in rapid-fire form. Here's benefits. These are good things that come with the path of wisdom. But then it's contrasted with the path of wickedness, starting at verse 14, the path of wickedness. It says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. So again, we see the earnestness of his appeal. There are six imperatives, six commands in these first two verses. He's warning his hearers in every possible way, depicting wickedness in uh, verse 14 as a journey, a path we shouldn't even set foot on. We should just go around, pass by. And he gives us, again, very good reasons. Look at those who practice wickedness. You get this sense of they're addicted to being wicked. Verse 16 says they can't sleep unless they've done wrong, or unless they've you know, committed a crime or corrupted someone. They've caused them to stumble. If they don't rob someone, sleep will rob them like a, an alcoholic or a drug addict needing a fix. 
I have to do something bad so that I can sleep. And then we see that wickedness is in sense. We'd say that's their bread and butter, verse 17. It's commonplace. It's as regular as their daily food. You know, they too are praying, give me my daily bread, except their daily bread is wickedness. And you think about it, who wants to be like that? Yet just a little experimenting with it, and you can be hooked forever. I remember reading a story about a police chief on Cape Cod. And uh, he'd been a chief, and, and they had an evidence room, and it was filled with drugs from various arrests they made. And one time he just wondered, I, I wonder what it was like. Why do these people get so addicted? And he said he just took the tiniest little bit and just kind of licked his finger and dipped it into the cocaine. He was an addict almost instantly, wound up getting arrested for stealing the drugs out of the evidence room, destroyed his career, destroyed his family, and he admitted in court he just wanted to see why these people did this. And then he couldn't stop. He said, wickedness is like that. It's easy to start. It's hard to stop. In case he hasn't gotten the point across yet, he makes an even more powerful contrast in the next two verses, verses 18 and 19. We're going to look at those, because verse 18 says, the way of wisdom is the way of light. The way of light. He says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now, light in the Bible is used for a number of different ways. It stands for truth, for happiness, for holiness, for the knowledge of God. He refers to it here as the light of dawn to indicate we're not naturally a righteous, but we come to it out of a long night, like the dawn of a new day. In gospel language, uh, we might turn to 1 Peter 2, where it says, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that first light is enough to illuminate our way so that we do not fall. Of course, we're told in the Gospel of uh, John that Christ himself is the true light, which gives light to everyone. He's coming into the world. The way of light should describe us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 uh, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. But it isn't perfect any more than is the first light of day. As the sun ascends in the sky, so the strength of the light increases. In the same way, the light of righteous living is this gradual growing thing that will only reach perfection when we arrive at the goal and receive the prize. Paul expounds on this entirely in Philippians chapter uh, three, and uh, it's, we're taught that in Christ we have a true righteousness to which we have not yet arrived. Paul admits that. He says in chapter uh, Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so that's what you get, but there's still this obvious contrast. Uh, Apostle John shows us the contrast. He says, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. So that's the contrast there, light to darkness. So we see verse 19, the way of wickedness is the way of darkness. It's the way of darkness. It says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You ever tried to walk around in the dark? And you think you know where things are, but sometimes somebody's left something out. You know, maybe you stepped on a Lego or something like that. This is just a great experience. Every parent should do at least once in their life, the little landmines that get left out. You know, this word here, translated deep darkness, actually comes to us from Exodus, which will be starting in September. And Exodus 10.22 talks about the plague of darkness so intense it could be felt, so total the eyes couldn't adjust to it. Darkness stands for ignorance and error and misery and sin. In Ephesians 4, uh, Paul teaches us that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's where darkness leads. And those who walk that way stumble. They're always in some kind of trouble, ultimately come to ruin, consigned to outer darkness, a state in which the light of God never penetrates. So the first half of this section of Proverbs 4, from verse 11 down to verse 19, it's actually talking about developing character. Choosing these two paths, wisdom versus wickedness, light versus darkness. He's trying to clearly lay out uh, the decision that has to be made. And he says that living life as a Christian is like walking a path that's been laid out in two different ways. In a sense, you've come to a fork. And, and he says, first of all, that, that walking on that path is mainly walking. Sometimes you run, there's an emergency. We're told that in verse 12 about running on the path. But mostly you make progress one step at a time, just step by step, daily, repeated, small activities. And yet those daily activities take you someplace. Your steps take you to a place you weren't before. And it's the Bible's way of saying that your character is uh, fixed and determined not by the big dramatic events, but by the daily choices you make, the small decisions. That's what fixes your character. But the discipline that wisdom develops is more important than just being able to make good decisions, even the little ones, even day after day. It's also a means of deciding what enters your heart and therefore what flows out of your heart. And so we see in the second part of this passage that the way of wisdom is health. The way of wisdom is health. Verses 20 through 27. It says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. 
Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So as he begins this new section in verse 20, the teacher again calls us to pay close attention. This must not lapse when his lesson ends. You're supposed to take it with you. Keep it in mind afterwards. Listening to words, not just a way of passing time. It's to be taken away with you and worked out in everyday life. And he says those who don't are deceiving themselves. And how can he impress this upon us? Once again, referring to the words of wisdom as life. Since nothing's more basic and He doesn't feel that this is saying enough because there's life that's just mere existence. But now he says, wisdom is life as healing. He describes in detail what he means by a healthy life. It begins in the heart, verse 23. Just as a physical organ to which we give this name is vital to the existence of life, so that for which it stands is vital to our quality of life, our spiritual life. Heart refers to the core of our being, our mind, will, and emotions. Everything about us flows from this inner being. And the words of the teacher would be this teaching of truth, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of God's law, and so on. But notice what he tells them to do. He doesn't just say, obey my words, although, of course, I think he would want them to do that. And he doesn't say, memorize my words, but I think he would want them to do that too. That's not the primary thing. The primary thing is keep your heart with all vigilance. Above all else, guard your heart. You cannot change your life by trying to work just on the will. St. Augustine said the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. Jesus brought this out himself in Luke chapter 6. He said the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In John 7, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He goes on to demonstrate this in our text. The writer mentions not just the heart, he mentions the mouth, he mentions uh, eyes, he mentions the feet. Only a beating heart enables those to keep functioning. Only a mind under the control of the word of the wise God enables these to function in a way that our behavior is consistent with the teaching that we profess to have received. So we have two things here in Proverbs chapter 4. We have the decision to be disciplined involves doing these two things. Walking in the path of wisdom as a daily decision, step by step, action by action. We discipline ourselves to make the right decisions time after time, day after day, event after event. Or we discipline ourselves to make bad decisions with bad consequences. And these decisions lead to light and life or to darkness and disease. And so the path is clearly laid out. There's a path of wisdom and a path of wickedness, light and dark. I started this morning by telling you about a man named George and how 
practicing being disciplined changed his life. After VMI, George entered the military, uh, which is not an uncommon thing if you go to VMI. And uh, this is now the beginning of the 1900s. The military then, and still today, thought you had to prepare men. There were few women in the military uh, then. You had to prepare men to make the right decisions in high-stress environments, namely combat. And so through the exercise of drill, a person becomes disciplined. Drill and ceremony, that's marching with a big group, all together, exactly the same. It builds discipline. Of course, the exercise of courtesy, a person becomes polite. Through the resistance to fear, a person develops courage. Practicing the act developed the virtue. And the point is to separate out that instant emotion from the action, to reduce the power of your feelings. Now, as has been his whole life, George was quickly underestimated by his superiors, who still viewed him as somewhat slow and plodding. And he's not promoted with his peers. This was not a merit system military then. There was no up and out system as there is today. You just stayed at whatever rank you were stuck at. And so George decided to become a genius at staff work. Now, having been an infantry officer, staff work is like a curse word. Okay, that's what you didn't want. But he decided that's what he would do. And he realized as he got into it, he intuitively understood the details of administration and logistics. And his superiors thought he was so valuable in these areas that they repeatedly denied him command of combat units. And command, both then and now, is the road to promotion. But George stuck at it. He kept acquiring skills, a variety of skills, in his very long and mostly very boring career. He served as an engineering officer, an ordnance officer, a quartermaster, a commissary officer, and he excelled at anything that required attention to detail. But he also learned how to see the big picture. And that dual combination of skills, paying attention to detail, but seeing the big picture, finally began to get the attention of senior officers. And when World War I rolled around, he was the supply officer for the 1st Division, the Big Red One. And he was known for jumping in and out of the trenches, checking in with frontline soldiers, taking note of what they most desperately needed. And right before the great counterattack of World War I, George planned out uh, the operation, the movement of 600,000 men and 900,000 tons of supplies. And yet, even at this point, he was still just a captain. And one day, the general of the army, John Blackjack Pershing, he was still four stars, but he got the title, which we would later associate with five stars, general of the army. And he came through, and he came up to the staff of the 1st Division, and he started ripping apart the commanding general and all the commanding officers, most of whom were fairly new to the job. The commanding general had only been there two days. And he just shredded them. 
Remember, George is a captain. And he stepped forward and grabbed Pershing's arm. His life should have ended like right then. But he vehemently countered Pershing, overwhelming him with a torrent of facts about the failure of Pershing's own headquarters. And Pershing was furious, and he turned around and barked at George and says, well, you have to appreciate the problems we have every day. And George shot back, yes, General, but we have to solve them every night. After that, Commanding General just looked at him and said, your career is over. And yet a few days later, General of the Army Black Jack Pershing called George and hired him and became his mentor. Six days later, the 1st Division joined in the great counterattack that would lead to the retreat of the German army, and every field officer and battalion commander was dead or wounded within 72 hours. In the end, George got promoted simply because the guys above him kept dying. At the end of the war, he was finally a full colonel, and he was about to receive his first star, Brigadier General. And then the war ended, and they reverted everybody to their peacetime ranks. So it's Tuesday, you're supposed to get promoted to general on Friday, and on Wednesday they make you a captain. I don't know how you'd handle that. It took another 18 years before George saw that star. After World War I, George was asked to lead the new infantry school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And he revolutionized the Army by rewriting all its manuals, new tactics, slimmed down logistics, dramatically improved officer training. He sent people out on training exercises without maps and without orders, simply with an objective to be captured and told them to figure it out. And those that did would eventually become the great leaders of World War II. And they figured it out, and they all passed George in promotion. Although finally, by 1936, he got that first star. And then World War II broke out, and America's entrance into it loomed large. And the men who passed over George remembered him and called him to Washington because they knew we have to get organized and get prepared for war. And George is a master organizer. And at one of his very first meetings there in Washington, President Roosevelt had called together the general staff and told them the coming war is going to be won largely by air and sea power. And everyone agreed. And the president looked up, noticing one general remained silent. And he said, don't you think so, George? To which General George Catlett Marshall of Leesburg, Virginia, said, I am sorry, Mr. President, but I don't at all. And then he laid out the case for land forces. First of all, the president never called him by his first name again. But he did make him his new chief of staff on September 1st, 1939, the day Germany invaded Poland. And he was jumped over numerous officers who outranked him because once again, he was simply more disciplined than everyone else. General Marshall was the senior military officer during World War II, promoted to general of the army, now a five-star rank, became secretary of state, created the Marshall Plan, 
which saved Europe and for which he won the Nobel Peace Prize. The boy who flunked his entrance interview into public school became the man who remains, after George Washington, the most respected soldier in American history. That's a great story. I love that story. But there's a problem with it. And it's the same problem with that story that there is with the book of Proverbs as we go through. There's a problem with the book of Proverbs. It's very easy to get boxed in by the book of Proverbs. It's very easy to just read the Proverbs, read the sayings, and go do it. Yes, you need more discipline in your life. But it's easy to forget it's a heart issue. It's not just an issue of having more willpower. You can have all the discipline of General George Catlett Marshall and still go to hell. Yes, on one hand, it's the little choices that determines who you're going to be. But on the other, you cannot change your choices simply by trying harder. 1,500 years ago, uh, St. Augustine uh, had quite a debate, a little bit longer than that, actually. I had quite a debate with a man named Pelagius, who said you could change your character by trying harder. You can change your behavior by exercising your will. If you just want to change your character, just try harder. And Augustine said, absolutely not. The main problem in your life is your heart is filled with disordered loves. Disordered loves. Your loves are out of order. There's nothing wrong with loving money or children or career, but you've made good things into ultimate things. They're out of order. They're disordered loves. And because of that, your heart is deeply putting its claws into something besides God, and therefore, you can't change. There's absolutely nobody more frustrated by this dilemma, this problem, than Martin Luther. Martin Luther realized we're all on this path to deep darkness of self-centeredness down this road to the deep darkness of self-absorption, and he saw it in himself, and he realized, because he was an Augustinian monk, which meant he had read Augustine, uh, one of the great thinkers in history, and he realized he had to change his heart in order to do that. It wasn't just about changing your behavior. You had to change your heart, and he didn't know how. And he kind of freaked out. He started going to confession every day for six hours. Until finally the, the guy who was the head of the order just said, stop. You know, not every breath is a sin. Luther said, I wanted to find the path to life. I didn't want to go down that path to deep darkness. So I became a monk. And guess what? Now I care for the poor, and I help the poor. But I've come to realize I don't help the poor for the sake of the poor. I do it so I can feel noble. I do it so God will bless me. I'm not doing it for the poor. I'm not even doing it for God. I'm doing it for myself. I'm just as self-centered in my morality as I was in my immorality. I'm on the same path. I can't change my heart. I read Proverbs 3, and I read Proverbs 4, and I can't change my heart. I'm still on the path I went into the monastery to avoid. I'm on the wrong way. 
Centuries after Proverbs was written, there were a group of disciples sitting around their teacher hoping he would help them with wisdom. The teacher said, I'm going soon to my father's house. There are many rooms in my father's house. I'll prepare a place for you. And one of his disciples named Philip said, Master, we don't know the way. Philip's using wisdom language. Philip's saying, look, we read Proverbs. We're looking for the way to life. Take the truth, put it in your heart, follow the way to life. We don't know the way. And in response, Jesus gives us one of the great thunderbolts of history. Every other teacher, every other wise man who ever lived said, I blaze the way, follow me. I've shown you the way, follow me. I'm pointing the way. If you live like I live, you'll find the way. You'll find life. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm pointing the way or I'm blazing the way. He doesn't say, I'll show you the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have done it for you. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. I don't show you the way. I am the way to life. You know why he could be the way to life? Because on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He took the deep darkness on himself, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. And when Martin Luther realized that, it changed his life. He said, all my life I've been thinking I had to give God my righteousness in order to placate him. And now I realize God gives me righteousness as a gift that I receive by faith because of what Jesus has done. Jesus dying for you, Jesus taking the deep darkness, that's what's going to melt your heart away from other things. That's what's going to heal your heart. Ultimately, that's what's going to change your heart. When money is second and Jesus is first, then you'll make wise financial decisions. When marriage is second and Jesus is first, will you make a good decision about who to marry? Only when Jesus is first and your work is second or your children are second, will your heart be healed, will you finally be wise? Only when you love Jesus more than you love yourself, will you see that wisdom goes into the heart and then flows out of the heart. And only when your heart is changed, when your heart is healed, will you develop the discipline that pleases God. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Think about that. Ask Jesus to change your heart. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son and through your Word. Thank you that you heal our hearts with the Gospel. We have a long way to go. The dawn just gives us enough light to see. We're a long way from noon. Father, there may be people present who are finding a lot of this intriguing, maybe even convicting, but certainly there are parts they don't understand. And I pray they'll keep pursuing the path of the gospel until the light dawns on them and they start to get it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all to understand the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Jesus Christ. This we pray 
In the name of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.